Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. My guest today is Dr. Caleb Bupp, who is a pediatrician trained and board certified in medical genetics, practicing with Spectrum Health West Michigan and Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He serves as the Chief of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is also an Assistant Professor at Michigan State University, where he was named a Pediatric Master's Series teacher. He is the Chairperson of the Genomics Committee at Helen DeVos and the Spectrum Health Institutional Biosafety Committee, as well as serving on the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital Research Advisory Council. He is the chair of the State of Michigan's Newborn Screen Quality Assurance Advisory Committee and a member of the Make-A-Wish Medical Advisory Council for the State of Michigan. Dr. Bupp completed his medical degree at the University of Toledo College of Medicine in Ohio and completed his pediatric residency at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. He went on to complete a medical genetics fellowship at the Greenwood Clinic in South Carolina. Recently, he helped describe a new treatable genetic syndrome caused by ODC1 mutations, now termed the Bachmann-Bupp syndrome. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bupp. Hey, Caleb. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for putting this together. I appreciate the time. Well, I'm really excited to talk with you. I heard you speak at a Michigan American Academy Pediatrics conference, which was virtual, and you did this presentation on genetics that was riveting, which for me is saying a lot because genetics is just a tough top. There feels like there's so many details. All I can think of is, you know, pairs of um, proteins and I just feel overwhelmed. So it, it was just the most clever presentation. So thank you for that. And why don't you tell folks how you got started in pediatric genetics? Why, why genetics? Well, genetics wasn't something that uh, I went looking for. It really sort of found me, which is always reassuring when it comes to how you spend your time professionally. I started out in medical school and headed towards a pediatrics residency, sort of imagining um, likely some sort of primary care type role, just kind of based on what interested me. And, you know, residency is a hard time to make decisions about what you want to do. Uh, because things are so busy and you have so many things going on and just the acuity of the patients that you're dealing with, let alone switching month to month. uh, It's a hard time to make decisions. And my first winter in Louisville um, during peak RSV season, I was on the inpatient wards and we admitted a little girl to the hospital who had Pompeii disease. And she wasn't admitted for her Pompeii. She was admitted for RSV. But because of her genetic diagnosis, she was much more medically fragile. And we ended up having her inpatient for essentially the entire month that I was on service. And that was probably my first experience with a patient who had a condition I had read about in the textbook, but the ones, the kinds of ones that you really never see in real life. Um, So kind of, uh, you know, you, you feel like you're looking up from your step one study book 
and seeing a patient in front of you that actually has the things that uh, you memorize for tests. And during her month of admission, the medical geneticists um, at the children's hospital I was at would come and see her and her family just to kind of check in. And and they just kind of caught my eye as folks that knew a lot about this very rare disease. And it was in sort of the more early days of Pompeii with enzyme replacement therapy. And there was just a lot of kind of interesting, intricate things going on in her care that I just really took notice of, of, took notice of and thought, well, this is just kind of cool. But, you know, life moves on and you, you know, you're admitting that the, the, the pager goes off and you have to admit another patient. So you don't always get a lot of time to process those, those sorts of things. And uh, in my second year, I really got lucky in having a, a pre-assigned two-week outpatient rotation with the genetics clinic that I, I had not asked for. Um, but it gave me sort of a, a second opportunity to see the care of patients who have genetic disorders in a different setting. And it was really that experience that crystallized in my in my mind. This is something that is really interesting and seems like something that might be a good fit for me. I was at that point, beginning of second year, just trying to figure out what life was going to be. And I sat down with the geneticist in Louisville and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about looking at a career in genetics. And they were just so excited that someone was interested in what they were passionate about. And man, when you're working underneath somebody who loves what they do, it's just infectious. And uh, that was really uh, another spark that got things rolling to applying the genetics training programs. And here we are, you know, 10 years later. It's a great story. I love that. I always remember telling kids in high school and you hear them say, you know, when you ask them, hey, what's your favorite class? You know, you might think, oh, maybe not that, but all it takes is a great teacher to grab you. I mean, it can be, I mean, if I could find a teacher that was really great at statistics, I might have liked that, but no way. <laughs> but uh, that that's really great. And I love that, you know, you don't have to go into medicine knowing exactly what you want to be when you grow up. And that that may change depending. I, I thought I wanted to do OB. And I had a great mentor in peds and I was like, yep, this is for me. So, well, you know, it might sort of be a surprise to listeners that we would have a geneticist come and talk on a podcast about pediatric emotional health and mental health. And, you know, when I think of genetics and disorders, we think about metabolic disorders, we think about um, anatomic um, you know, deformities and and things like organ diseases, but maybe not always mental health, maybe cognitive stuff. But um, do you think that there's an intersect? Yeah, I think there there definitely is. And I think there are three big groups that I think about when it comes to this intersection. The first is patients with genetic syndromes that folks may have some familiarity with, that it turns out as we're understanding more about these disorders, we're seeing that there's a spectrum and some of that spectrum is more almost a pure mental health type presentation. I think of 22Q deletion syndrome, the George syndrome. You know, what we learn is, is the newborn findings, the calcium, the immune system, the heart defect. Well, it turns out that some folks have a fairly mild version of that that just manifests as learning problems, ADHD. Well, then there's even sort of another spectrum where there's folks that that actually presents with schizophrenia. And some of that comes from, we didn't have as much genetic testing in the past. And when you find somebody that has, let's say, 22Q deletion, well, maybe one of their parents also has, has it. 
but you never would have known it. But, well, well, that parent sure did have some learning problems. And then you go back and say, well, there was a grandparent. Well, boy, there's a strong family history of schizophrenia. So you just start to peel away the layers of the onion and find things that you didn't necessarily think were there. So I think that's one grouping. The other is, you know, finding really newer genetic conditions that really manifest as sort of just this more neurocognitive type phenotype. So there are a couple of particular areas on chromosome 15 and 16 that sort of, we kind of talked about them being like a neurosusceptibility region. And if you have deletions or duplications, um, which a chromosome microarray might find, well, oftentimes some of the findings there are really just learning problems, behavior issues, anxiety, again, more of that kind of soft picture, but the genetics actually explain the why. But if you put these folks in a lineup, you wouldn't pick them out as being physically distinctive or or really, you know, notable for other reasons. But again, as we are doing more genetic testing, we're finding things that uh, we just didn't know existed. And then I think the third group that's more to come is understanding more of the common variations in our genetic code that, you know, gives someone blue eyes or brown eyes or whatever, but sort of on a higher level that really weave together the complexity of who we are and put us at risk for health issues as far as, you know, I think we, we know that there are families that mental health concerns run more prevalently in. And, and I think I can confidently say it is absolutely genetic. We just can't go out and prove it yet, right? We don't know what the genes are likely, what the combination of genes are that really kind of put together the recipe that eventually ends up in, you know, mental health concerns or, or sort of, again, this less definable phenotype. But I think that is a big part of the future of genetics is understanding more, more sort of multifactorial diseases. Yeah, I'm I'm furiously taking notes because it just it sort of makes you start spinning about well, what about this? What about that? You know, um, you know, substance use. You know, yep. is there this genetic predisposition? Well, you know, yes, but nobody knows what it is. But you know, it certainly it runs in families, so there must be something. And then, of course, there's the whole field of epigenetics. I mean, the fact that events and uh, crises that happen to individuals may actually change how your genetics are expressed, which is crazy. To th- I mean, I think we think of genetics, you know, our DNA is static. Right. And that really is perhaps not the case. Absolutely. You know, we've done some work here kind of in the middle. So our DNA, you're right, it's kind of the blueprint. Well, DNA gets turned into RNA. RNA is more sort of a snapshot of how the body's functioning in real time. So I think about it, DNA is the blueprint. RNA is going to the construction site and seeing, is the foundation been poured? You know, is the roof on yet? Kind of what's actually happening. And what we're seeing is understanding the RNA, particularly in the middle of an illness, kind of can sort of, you know, retrospectively fill in some gaps and help you understand some of the DNA pieces that maybe you couldn't before things started to happen. And epigenetics is just another layer on top of that. And you're right, we have historical examples of, you know, famines and and things that have impacted entire populations that don't necessarily cause health issues in those folks, or maybe not even in their kids, but in their grandkids, we see higher instances of of, of health issues. Um, There's been a good deal of work looking at uh, childhood traumas. Um, And 
and we all know we have these kids that just can't seem to get a break and they have one thing after another after another happen to them completely outside of their control well that changes their epigenetics and you know predisposes them to things that weren't necessarily going to be the case um, let alone what about their kids and their kids. And again, I think we intuitively know this, right? We see patients and we're not surprised at all that this kid's struggling because they've been through, you know, abuse and neglect. And, you know, so I'm not surprised that the kid's acting out, but, uh, you know, understanding that more as things go on is, is again, one of the promises of genetics. I say sometimes genetics is exciting, but terrifying. <laughs> For me, it's always been terrifying, but I, I love the way you kind of distill it into this, like DNA is the blueprint, RNA is the, I mean, and then describe what a construction site, I mean, I've never heard that kind of framework, to, which makes it um, easier to understand if there is such a thing as genetics and easy, I don't know. <laughs> well, um, you try to set the bar really low, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I mean, I guess this comes to, um, you know, genetic evaluation and, you know, what are primary care folks supposed to do? I think that pediatricians, and I've said this many times, are really good at normal development. We know what normal looks like pretty well. I mean, there's variation, of, of course, but we also have a sense of, eh, this just isn't right. And um, something's up. And I wonder if it could be, you know, um, autism, could it be something else? I don't know exactly what it is, but something's up. And for those kids, um, is that something that we should be thinking about, like an algorithm for ordering genetic testing? Should we refer all those kids? What would be your advice? Yeah, it is so hard to try to put together algorithms for genetics because there are just too many indications, too many disorders to try to figure out what to do. When I talk to uh, residents, I have this silly uh, acronym that uh, I tell them to, and I have a, a picture of a dog, and I tell them to, to think wolf. I tell them to think weird, undiagnosed, and familial. Um, exactly what you said, building on that. You know what you know, and you get so good at seeing the norm that when something comes along that's weird, think genetic. Like, why? Like, this makes no sense. I've seen a, a thousand kids, and I've never seen a kid who's had this. That's a reason to think genetic. The undiagnosed is, I just can't figure out what this person has. They haven't had what I thought they were, were going to have, and all my other testing or my other workup hasn't gotten me anywhere. Well, that's another good place to think genetic. And then the familial, again, sort of, if something's running in the family, that should be a red flag for you to think genetic. Um, and I think that's a, a reasonable barometer for just when to kind of make the call because, um, I mean, unfortunately, every health issue is genetic in some way, shape, or form. We just have to get granular enough to figure out what exactly the genetic cause for that is. Um, it's just a matter of sort of finding the cutoff for when do I say, yeah, let's go ahead and, you know, work this up a little bit more versus I don't know what's going on and everything seems to be pretty stable. So we'll leave it be for now. Right. And I think, you know, back to my career, I've probably waited to refer to, I mean, partly just because access hasn't always been easy. And I wonder if, you know, again, one of the, I think the uh, silver linings of COVID has been tele, telehealth. Now we have access to you from anywhere, essentially. Um, so, but I, I think, you know, I just 
that's, oh, it couldn't be that. Or, well, the dad looks kind of just exactly like it. Well, maybe that's a, a really red flag that maybe there's something wrong. But um, yeah, and I think sometimes I've struggled with trying to convince a family like your child has this murmur has just and to say to a family your kid looks kind of funny that's a hard thing to say um and yep. you know of course I wonder were there kids that I missed you you talked about previously when we visited before the podcast about maybe a stepwise evaluation approach and again I think we all like algorithms but um, what about something like autism? Because, you know, here's this huge spectrum. We know that there's some genetic something or other because there's a higher incidence in families, but that doesn't explain everything. So what, what about those kids? What are, what are your, what's your advice for primary care? Yeah, I think autism is a good example of something that's going to be more common in the genetic sphere as far as you're just going to have more kids walk in your door um, with that. And I think my take on genetics when it comes to autism is any kid who's got autism should at least be offered genetic testing, or maybe even I should soften that and say they should be offered the opportunity to discuss genetic testing. You know, the numbers are getting to the place now where if you could do every test under the sun genetically, which is not typically practical, maybe about close to 50% of kids who have autism, we can find a genetic cause. Again, finding the genetic cause doesn't necessarily change what you're doing day in and day out. It's typically still ABA. It's all it's the daily grind that actually makes a difference. But having that why question answered is extremely meaningful for a family. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of families carry with them when it comes to autism is the guilt. Was it something that I did or didn't do? And goodness, that has to be a part of sort of the, the myth making out there about all these causes of autism that aren't real. Um, because we just so desperately want to have something to hang our hat on and say, this is why. So genetics can kind of answer that. So I think anybody who has autism should at least be offered. But you you kind of mentioned before with, with, with families, uh, just because they should be offered doesn't mean that families are going to be interested. And one of the least productive uses of, of a genetics clinic's time is talking with a family that doesn't want to be there. Um, they don't care. Um, it's not going to make a difference to them. Um, you know, they're content with how things are. And that's hard to argue with, with most genetic conditions. It, we are what we are genetically. We can't really go in and change the genetic code. So if a family's made peace with it, you know, be it autism or something else, there's, there's really no use for genetics. But if they are at least willing to have the conversation and look at it, there are lots of tests that are out there that are available for them that, you know, we have pretty good access for now compared to 10 years ago, let alone really even a year ago, there's a lot we can do uh, to really get to that, you know, 20, 30, 40, and up to 50% of cases finding something. Wow, that that blows me away. I, I guess, I mean, I think about kids that I've ordered perhaps like a microarray assay, and I haven't, I mean, I could count on like one hand the number of kids where I, there has been something on there, but maybe that's not the right test. I missed something. Right. I mean, you know, in terms of the testing, you know, karyotype, fish test, fragile X, microarray, I mean, where where do you even start? So when it comes to looking at genetic testing for autism, there in really almost all genetic conditions, there's not really a need for karyotypes anymore at all. There are a few exceptions. If you have a patient with Down syndrome, a karyotype is useful to help with the recurrence risk for the family, but not 
really necessary for a clinical diagnosis. So we really don't order karyotypes at all. Um, fish testing, again, not really necessary now that we have microarrays. Um, the only exception to that would be if you really know what somebody has, say you know they have Williams syndrome or you're highly suspicious, you can order the fish test for Williams syndrome and make that diagnosis. But it's not really necessary anymore because you get the same thing on the microarray and you get more. And really the prices come down to such that it's fairly equivalent. Fish is, yes, it's still cheaper. But I think, again, for the primary care doc, unless you're really confident, fish really doesn't need to be in your tool belt anymore. And really, you know, karyotype chromosome analysis and fish have really fallen by the wayside because of microarray. You know, microarray is basically super fish. It's doing a bunch of fish probes at the same time. The first microarrays were, were, were 92 probes, and they were 92 probes because we have 46 chromosomes, and the probe was for the P arm and the Q arm of each chromosome. So that's how they first started, basically a fish for, for all those at the same time. And now our microarrays are typically one to two million probes. So that's slicing and dicing that, that, that set of chromosomes into one to two million tiny pieces, and then doing one to two million fish tests all at the same time. So that's where our microarray has been a huge jump, but it's still very much a quantitative test. Is it there or not? So microarrays, fish, karyotypes, they don't tell you anything about the, the, the sequence of the, of the genetic code. So they don't pick up mutations. So that's really a separate group of genetic testing sequencing. And again, similar, you can sequence a single gene. I think someone has a chondroplasia. There's one gene that you sequence for that. You could sequence a handful of genes. You know, I think somebody has Noonan syndrome. It's about 10 or 15 genes. You can sequence those genes. I don't really know what somebody has, or I think they have autism or epilepsy. Now we're at the thousands of genes or just whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing. So again, more of a qualitative test to pair with your quantitative tests. Um, and that's sort of just my very quick and dirty run through of genetic testing but as I go through that, you probably get a sense of like, well, good grief, well, what am I supposed to order um, in that? And that's where it becomes harder because it's a blessing for us to be able to have these broad tests that do a whole bunch of things at the same time. But it's also a curse because it just opens up doors that you don't know what you're going to find, let alone if you want to find it, let alone if you're going to know what to do if you find it. Um, so I think that's kind of the challenge that we're at right now. Our technology is so good that it's put us in this spot of, are, are we really ready to do this in a primary care office? Because um, it's, 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 it's a big undertaking. Do you think there's, I, I think about like MRIs, you know, now MRIs pick up all this stuff and then you get it back and you're like, well, do I do something now? Do I have to call neurosurgery to say, you know, this is a cyst? Does it mean anything? So let's say I'm a primary care person, I see a family and maybe they have a distant relative that, you know, is the, um, you know, kind of odd, you know, the, and he's a computer programmer. And I think this child may have autism and I, they go for their ADOS and they say, yes, in fact, they qualify. And is it, does it make sense to order a microarray saying to the family, you know, if this comes back and we find something, we will want you to see genetics just to help us describe it. I mean, does that help you if we do that step first, knowing that we may not know exactly what to do with the results? Uh, it certainly would, but that comes with two big warnings. And one of them is 
more frustrating than the other. Uh, the first one is just the consenting for that genetic test. Do you feel comfortable talking through what the test might or might not find? It could find something that would have adult health impact. It could render somebody uninsurable. These are just things that, again, as we order urinalysis, echoes, MRIs, we don't typically have that as part of the conversation and our families aren't signing documents to that effect. And I think that's something that a, a, a pediatrician, a, a primary care doc, an office can absolutely figure out a workflow for, but it's a hard one and it makes a lot of people nervous. I would and never this, have even thought of that. Yeah. And and, and that's the place where, uh, you know, I, I, t- I tell folks sometimes, you know, once the information's out, you can't put it back in. So we have to think about this ahead of time. And we don't think about life insurance and disability insurance coverage in kids. It's not, you know, it's not something we give a lot of mind to. But if you diagnose a child with something, you know, say you find a change in, you know, the BRCA1 or 2 genes, that's not going to impact a kid in childhood whatsoever. But when they try to go get life insurance as an adult, they're going to pay a higher rate because of that. And you've basically taken away the opportunity for that child then to become an adult and make that informed decision themselves. And this doesn't happen regularly, but it happens. Sure. And this is just a different thought process that I think, you know, scares people away sometimes. And again, it's, it's kind of up to you. If you want to figure that out, absolutely. There are resources. I think the AAP has supported, you know, primary care providers doing genetic testing and there are ways to do it. It's just, it's a process. And the other thing is the cost and insurance coverage of genetic testing. And this is the one that's, this is the worst part of being a geneticist. Genetic testing isn't cheap. Insurers cover it very, very differently and it changes constantly. And if you don't file the right paperwork and the authorizations, your patients can get stuck with big bills. I had a patient a few months ago, it was an adult, but her neurologist had ordered a a gene panel and it cost her $6,000. She had to pay for it. Oh and it was, a, they, they, they ordered too broad of a test. They just needed to order a single gene. It would have been $200. Uh, and that was someone that had very good intentions. Um, but there's just this underbelly of genetics with costs and approvals that again, a lot of offices just aren't set up to do it, let alone that this isn't going to be something you're going to do every day. I mean, we do it day in and day out, but if you're doing this once a month or once every other month, you're going to have someone in your office hate you because they're going to spend hours on the phone with insurance companies trying to get clarity on something that is just a matter of doing things the right way, but figuring it out is hard. I had a, makes me think of a family I had, not quite for genetic tests, well, kind of, um, a family where they had celiac disease in the child and the GI doctor, rightly so, said, we need to test the other kids and the parents. Well, the insurance company, I mean, we went round and round and round. I fi- I think they finally covered it, but you know, they're, I mean, that's not necessarily mental health condition, but that affected the parents' mental health because they were super anxious. And I mean, I would be sick if I ordered a test that rendered that kind of cost to a family. And it was my, my mistake. You know, yep. what, what do you do with that? So uh, yeah, that kind of comes to, I that was one of the questions I had is about this prior authorization. Well, now that I've talked to you about this, it makes me scared. And I'm thinking, and maybe I would want to refer these kids rather than than doing that. Uh, maybe it's really better for the family because you can answer their questions that I can't. Um, are there, so let's say I was going to do that. Are there some, I mean, do you have people sign a consent? 
Yes. Yeah. You For do. every genetic test, there's typically it's, it's usually more than one page. Huh. Um, uh, and it, uh, you know, it's usually about 15 or 20 minutes of time to go through that consent to go through. All, I mean, you know, genetic test information isn't protected in the military. So again, if you're testing a child and they want to go into the military someday, um, mm. you could make that. So there's just all these little nooks and cranny. Um, you know, if people want to look a little bit more, uh, there's something called GINA or the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. That's really sort of the landmark protection around genetic testing. It's It's been a while since that came through, but it's a good sort of, uh, it shows you what's what's protected and what's not and just gives you a sense of what you might get yourself into. And, and I think this is where a lot of folks get uh, get tied up in knots, just like you're articulating is, oh, man, there are so many patients that could probably benefit from genetic testing, but how are we going to do it for them? And I think that's one of the problems we need to solve because there are only so many genetics clinics and genetic providers. So there's clearly a bottleneck, but how do we kind of get this out more to the masses and in, in the ways that it will be helpful? You know, cost is going to come down for these testing and make it more accessible, but we're still going to have these ethical and legal questions around genetic testing and just the impact of it. So now here it intersects with advocacy because we have to advocate for, I mean, if this is the right thing to do for kids and this information is invaluable to families, then it's it's the right thing to do. And 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 this is a place where agencies like, you know, the um, AAP can go to bat. And I'm sure that, um, you know, the committees on genetics are, are, they're well aware of that, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, we're always banging our heads against what's right and what people can afford. I mean, and I understand as far as, you know, stuff is expensive and does an insurance company want to cover a test that's going to cost thousands of dollars? especially if it's not the right test. I mean, I can understand that. I guess this, speaking of testing, what about genetic testing that parents are asking us about, particularly for medications? Because so one in particular I know of is GeneSight. So a family comes in and says, hey, I know there's this genetic testing that you can do to you know, figure out what's the best medication, psychotropic medication, and I want my kid to have that testing. So there seems to be all over the place with um, primary care. I mean, some of us are doing it because we've been pressured to do it. And then, you know, like you said before, we don't know quite what to do with the results. Psychiatrists really are all over the place as well. Um, I think that they feel that there's a consensus as far as adults, but child psychiatry has been a little bit more um, reluctant to say, yes, kids should have this. So what about that? Yeah. I mean, that is the natural outflow of the cost of genetic testing coming down and genetics becoming more part of our sort of our our cultural vernacular where, where, you know, we see ads on Facebook for genetic testing that'll tell us what to eat or drink or genetic testing for our pets. So it's become more of a, oh, well, let's just do this test. No big deal, right? I'll swab my cheek and I'll, I'll get all this useful information. If I can do a quick soapbox, there's a reason genetic tests that are advertised right to you are cheap because they want your data more than they are making money from what you're sending them because your genetic data, particularly when you compile it with tens and thousands of millions of other data sets, is extremely valuable for these companies to then sell. 
and they're not like selling it on the black market, but imagine a pharmaceutical company that wants to develop a drug. Well, a million data sets of genetic information would be very valuable for them to use for their research and development. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but when you sign that really long, you click the accept after you do some of these direct to consumer, there's a reason. So I apologize for the soapbox, no, but it's something no. that, that I think people don't always realize. Or we're again, we're just used to scrolling through when we update something and saying accept and move on. Sure. So you would be talking about things like ancestry and 23andMe. Yep. I mean, I honestly took pause. I did do one. It was just like, oh, this would be interesting. I was disappointed because it wasn't like they said, well, your your family's from this place. Well, you know, if you don't know, you know, more and more of your relatives are in there, there isn't a whole lot of data. So you get these big swaths of Asia, you know, well, it's like, well, I knew that, but so uh, it can be misleading and it's a little scary to know your stuff's out there um, right. and what it's going to be used for. But so, you know, gene sites, I mean, I've ordered them before and I often have told families, this may give you some information about how a drug is metabolized and it may direct maybe dosing, whether you might want to, I would recommend start low anyway, but um, that you're more likely to have a side effect from this, but it's not going to tell you what's going to work. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's a reasonable uh, explanation. So gene sight and sort of, I would call those pharmacogenomic uh, testing, what those tests do is they're not really looking for mutations in your genetic code. They're, they're not looking for things that are wrong. They're looking at polymorphisms. So polymorphisms are just common variations in our genetic code that we all have. And it's basically looking and saying, well, what are the polymorphisms in your genes that are involved in metabolism? And then what can we sort of correlate with drug metabolism based on those changes in those genes? So, you know, if, if, you know, three quarters of people who have this polymorphism metabolize this drug faster or slower. Well, that's how we put together and give these kind of vague reports about what drugs are high impact or low impact or what are high risk or low risk. Because if you ever looked at one of those test reports, it's kind of vague. They kind of just give you a lot of them do red light, green light, yellow light type things. So they're trying to be visually appealing to give you a sense but, you know, as, as anybody who's written a script for these the drugs that are on there, so much of those medication treatments are kind of guesswork. And, and I don't mean to, like, be insulting there, but that, that's how it is. Oh, I and, think that's completely true. I mean, right? it's, it's start one, go up on the dose, switch to another. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think that's the hard part about psychiatric medications is it really is. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of trial and error, to be honest. Exactly. And the the concept behind pharmacogenomic testing is so sound, right? We are all genetically unique, and it just makes sense that our bodies don't metabolize medications the same way. It's just not possible. And if we can harness our genetic difference and connect that to medication dosing choice, it totally makes sense that we should probably be taking different things or at least different doses because we're that unique. But to jump that to switching a med or going up on a dose, we're just not quite as there yet as maybe the companies would like us to believe. So I guess from a parent standpoint, you know, is it one worth the cost? And two, do you see down the road that this may be a way to say, hey, I think you would do better on Prozac than you will on Zoloft? I mean, is that something that may happen? 
So I think future state, absolutely. It's just a matter of whether that's going to be in a year or 30 years. You know, we know that something like Coumadin, that is really hard to get right dosing. There's very good pharmacogenomic testing about that. And that's a tricky med, but the idea of getting people tested, getting it in the medical record, having people know what to do with the dosing, it's just never panned out. So that makes me a little pessimistic that we're going to figure it out if we couldn't sort it out with one that we actually had all the pieces together with. But I think the the power of genetics and genetic testing is going to drive it towards that being the future. Um, it's just a matter of getting there and having people understand what the ride really is as we go along on it. So as far as your pearl for a pediatrician, I mean, if a parent is coming to you, I, what would you tell that parent? So I think what I would say is if it helps your therapeutic relationship with that patient and family, if you feel like it's going to help your treatment and care of that kid, then do it. You know, if it's if they're going to get so grumpy at you because you refuse to order it, I don't think the downside is enough to to try to get in there. But if they're asking, if they really don't, if they don't really have a strong preference, it's kind of up to you. If, if you feel like it would be helpful, and you know, the, anecdotally, I've heard that uh, you know patients are more compliant because the genetic test quote said it was going to work, which is not the truth, but. I don't know, maybe that's not a great way to practice medicine, but sometimes the patients would just do what we said. They'd be healthy. I mean, if we'd all exercise and eat better, we'd all be healthier, but we don't. Um, so, you know, some of it's kind of just that the art of practicing medicine uh, still. So are you saying if your genetic testing said, hey, if you started running, you're going to live an extra five years, even though that might be true anyway? Right. That- well, and so much of it comes down to risk. Um, so a lot of the direct-to-consumer or sort of the polymorphism testing is about risk. So, you know, Alzheimer's is a good example. So, you know, genetics can tell you you're at a higher risk. Well, that higher risk only is solely dependent on where you started from to begin with. So I think of it as a cliff. And if you fall off a cliff, you get a disease. Some people are born at the edge of the cliff and it doesn't take much in life for them to fall off that cliff. But other people are born miles away from the cliff. And no matter what do they do during their life, they're never going to have that health issue. So again, our genetic risk, if you're a hundred times more likely and you're born on the edge of the cliff, well, you're definitely going to get it. But if you're a hundred times more likely and you were born a mile away, you're still never going to get the health issue. So it's sort of still the context of, of how we understand this information and avoiding false reassurance. You are so good at metaphors. You should write a book. <laughs> I And I think the other thing that people won't be able to see, of course, is when you use slides, you know, pictures of scissors, you know, snipping things and library books. I, I can't explain it, but you, you should come up with maybe like a graphic novel. <laughs> right, has, yeah. That put has, that, uh, that'd be reading to put you to sleep at night, right? I don't know. I <laughs> I was actually, honestly, at your um, presentation, I was riveted, which that's hard to do on on a topic like this. Well, kind of wrapping up, um, what are some pearls that you would have? Any takeaways? So one thing that I, I'm just going to loop back to something that you said, because I feel like it's been something that's been valuable for me and for others. When you're seeing particularly like a child, and you think they're maybe a little distinctive, and you kind of brought up the idea, well, how do I tell a parent I want to refer you because I just, they look a little weird. 
the 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 pearl I've had for people is to say to parents, uh, who who do they look like in the family? Because if they give you the answer, oh, they look just like dad or brother or sister, that gives you a little bit more reassurance that what you're looking at isn't distinctly abnormal. But when I get the answer from a family, they don't look like anybody. That just makes me think genetic a little bit more. So sort of that like dysmorphology. I, I know that's kind of a random thing, but it's something that I. I'd like to tell people because it's just a polite way of getting a little bit of insider information to try to confirm whether what you're seeing with your eyes is truly distinctive or not. Well, honestly, um, who knew? I could talk about this for a long time just because I'm fascinated by how easy you make this to understand. If you could go back and talk to yourself as a resident, what would you say to yourself? Well, I guess now that I'm in genetics, I would have told myself, hey, you need to learn more genetics sooner than later, particularly before I, you know, sort of looked into this as as my profession uh, for the long term, because we just, there's so much that we have to learn as as pediatricians and as healthcare providers. And, uh, you know, genetics is at the, it's at the low end of the spectrum many times because it's not often acute and it's always there. And, you know, we can't go in and fix it per se, but the the future of genetics and medicine is explosive. And I think for anybody, wherever you're at in your career, you got to find a way to understand it at least a little bit, and to at least maybe to get to the place where you're comfortable with it. When people rotate through our clinic, I tell them, I want them to leave with a healthy fear of genetics, but I don't want it to be a crippling fear. <laughs> you know, because you need to know what you're getting into, but also know that it's unavoidable with how the practice of medicine is is moving, let alone how it really is now in, in, in current times. Well, maybe it's not so much healthy fear, healthy respect. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly, I, the number one thing that I heard you say today is if you don't know what you're going to do with this result, you better be prepared for that and be able to explain to parents what that means. Maybe um, we can include in the show notes um, maybe some links to consent forms, what those look like, or any other materials. So I'll get that information from you, and maybe um, I can include the link to the um, GINA Act that you mentioned. So, well, listen, this has been fascinating. I so appreciate your time, and and you're just so smart and, and so humble about it. And I, I bet that residents really enjoy your rotation. I think I would have dreaded doing a rotation in genetics, but I think you would be a lot of fun. I think genetics is 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 so much fun. That's one of the reasons that I've enjoyed it so much. One day is never the same as the next, but uh, thus is the practice of medicine many times. So I appreciate the chance to talk a little bit more about what I'm excited about and hopefully uh, uh, share some excitement with others. Well, great. Thanks again and um, stay safe, be well. And it will be interesting to see with this whole COVID thing about the people that got really sick versus those that didn't, if there's some genetic something or other. So I guess we should all stay tuned on that one, right? Absolutely. Well, take care. And again, thank you so much. I want to thank Dr. Caleb Bupp for his time today. What great information Genetics has always been a really tough subject for me because it's so complicated and detail-oriented, and that's just not my strong suit. There was a great takeaway that I will headline and close with, and that is we need to obtain consent from our families when we are ordering genetic tests. 
I never really thought about that before, but I can certainly see the implications for ordering something and then uncovering information that we might not know what to do with. That leads us into available genetics testing. Because of the availability of genetic testing on the market like Ancestry and 23andMe, genetic testing is something that has become part of the mainstream conversation. There are lots of options. There really aren't any algorithms for how to approach genetic testing, but he did have some suggestions in that karyotyping rarely needs to be done and probably shouldn't be a consideration anymore. Fish testing is helpful if you know specifically what you're looking for, such as Williams syndrome, and you're ordering specific to that. In general, the microarray assay has become one of the most important tests, but it's really expensive, so you have to consider that. Think about prior authorization. As he described a family that got stuck with a $6,000 bill when it could have been a test that would have cost the family $200, I would have felt awful if I had obtained that testing without really thinking through what I was asking a family to pay for. A really startling number was that 50% of children with autism may have some genetic cause that can be identified. Now that won't change really probably the treatment because there is not a cure as we know, but sometimes it's very helpful for families. And honestly, I think for us too, to know that there is a genetic cause and certainly it would have implications on other children for the family. He recommended that all children with autism should be offered the opportunity for genetic testing or at least a consultation with a medical geneticist. It's never too late, so if you haven't thought about it, you can always offer it now. Parents may or may not want that information, and it should be up to them whether or not you proceed with testing or referral. After listening, I think my first step would be to refer, at least have a consultation call with a geneticist Even though there aren't very many of them across the country, telehealth has opened up new access opportunities, so keep that in mind. So his biggest pearl takeaway is that one of the biggest barriers is cost, and we need to be mindful, but that probably will come down over time. Two, it's never too late to offer testing. And three, it's always okay to refer So I hope this was helpful to you. I was honestly fascinated by some of the information and I could have listened to him for a long time. So I hope you found something helpful. Be safe out there, take care of yourselves and get vaccinated. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.